0: Arthritis. I got some DAPRA samples. In. Oh, I won't need a joke. Well, you're sure, you can make bounce around on a sweat. No, it's all right. The thing is, I'm dying. What? Well, not right this minute, but the next week or so. What, you say you're dying? Yeah, but I want to wait until my daughter and her family can get up here from Boston.
1: <laughs> what? Is this a joke? What are you talking about? I just gave you a complete workup. You have a little arthritis. Big deal.
0: You have some symptoms that you're not telling me about? No, no, I'm just winding
2: down. Lining down. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, I've been thinking a lot about carousels lately. How they go around and around instead of just ending up in a straight line. How things can just have a cycle to them and how things move to and fro rather than just ending it right there. I, I think I got this idea because recently I've been looking over Catcher in the Rye mm. and at the end of the novel spoilers i'm sorry for anyone that hasn't read this uh (laughs) book from like seventy years ago but at the end of the novel holden looks at phoebe and he says i felt so damn happy all of a sudden the way old phoebe kept going around and around i was damn near bawling i felt so damn happy if you want to know the truth i don't know why it was just that she looked so damn nice the way she kept going around and around in her blue coat and all god I wish he could have been there. And the symbolism behind that is that Holden thinks that going to adulthood is a one-way path and that once you reach it, you are doomed to a fate of uh, just absolute degeneracy. You just (laughs) think that life is going to be incredibly crappy, but instead it's a carousel. There are times in which things are going great and times in which things aren't going great. You have to realize that there's going to be great times and there's going to be times in which you are saddened. And I think that that really resonated with me in this episode.
3: Yeah, that's a just such a powerful metaphor and that image at the end of catcher in the rye. What a wonderful what a wonderful book, but yeah, such a such a neat idea that time isn't just a straight arrow. It's can also be interpreted as a spinning circle and how we are always, you know, we're, that we are continually moving in one direction. Um, we're kind of brought back around to some of these same feelings and same similar milestones and strife, hardship, but also, um, wonderful celebration and success. Yeah. It's kind of like ups and downs, but yeah. So, so this is, this is a pretty, um, Pretty strong episode for you, maybe you'd say.
2: I think there's like a lot of <laughs> heavy themes that are going on in this episode for sure. Hang yeah. on, yeah, but this is not a podcast where we discuss literary <laughs> classics from the 19 yeah hundreds. Um, this is a Northern Overexposure podcast.
3: That's what we're talking about today. Is Northern Exposure? This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. I'm your host Lee, and I'm always joined by your other host Charles. Now, I've seen Northern Exposure more than a few times. And Charles, every time we watch an episode, it's your first time watching it. Of course, we're in the fifth season now. You've got a pretty good grasp for all the characters and the story and where everything might be going, though there's always surprises to be had with this show. And another aspect of this podcast is we're trying to expand the reach of Northern Exposure. It's a show that's sort of fallen out of the limelight and not many people today maybe have heard about it. You can only watch it on DVD or now they have Blu-rays, but it's never been available for streaming. So part of our mission of this uh, podcast to expand the reach of the show, we invite on a guest. Each episode, we get someone who has never seen Northern Exposure to check it out and give us their thoughts. Um, yeah, Charles, it's a, it's a very heavy, uh, way to start, but yeah. What do you think? What do you think about this, uh, this episode, where we are now in season five,
2: all I can think about is that I've written something very similar to this uh, to the episode itself. Yeah, me, wow. me and you worked on that. <laughs> we wrote oh. something that was like very, very similar to the ideas that I'd be presenting in here. And I was like, "Huh," feel like I already know what to talk about. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> feel like Lee's good. gonna know what I'm gonna be saying. <laughs> so you're referring to a, another
3: video essay that we did, not a Northern Exposure video essay, which we've got. Uh, Actually, right now, if you check our YouTube channel, we did a video essay on Northern Exposure back in like November or October around that time. But uh, Charles, you've written and produced and created this video essay on the anime K-On or the K-On movie, which is based on the anime series. And that show, I think uh, from what I learned from your analysis of the movie is a lot about feelings of uh, sort of just the ephemeral nature of, life and happiness and how things, maybe things maybe get lost, but you'll always have the memory. I don't know. Yeah. What do you have to say about that, Charles?
2: Yeah. It plays a lot into the themes of what we're talking about today, about how things are going round and round, how these girls that are planning their last days of their senior year of high school, how they'll never be able to regain these days again, but hopefully they can revisit these memories. And then I parlayed it into the creator of the series who unfortunately had to leave the studio after 15 years of working there circumstances beyond the universe's control would change our path and they shared a lot of similarities that I thought was very interesting so I tried to connect the two and do parallel themes between them but yeah essentially it's just this idea that the memories we want could never be perfectly preserved in crystalline glass they're mostly just there for us to reflect upon in ourselves and By design, it's not supposed to send us into existential fraught state. (laughs) It's just supposed to remind us of the beauty of impermanence, how it can make us run throughout the playground of our imagination and let us leap from the swing set to take flight in a kaleidoscope of wonder, poignancy, and gentle sentimentality. All of this is I'm lifting straight from memory from the video essay. <laughs> yeah,
3: we've listened to, we've edited it. So like, so we've listened to it countless number of times, but- uh,
2: I have I have listened to that at least like 300 times or something. <laughs> Not because I'm vain. It's just because I need to get the- the sound levels right and make sure to like work in the cuts. (laughs) I've seen it so many times. (laughs) Well, it's
3: very meticulously uh, prepared and very well produced. I I say, I'd have to
2: say, I, uh, hang on when I, Did not, you definitely helped a lot. You you were obviously a large helping hand in helping produce this. For sure, for sure. Of course, thank you.
3: I definitely can't take all the credit. I just, you know, cleaned it up, but I think all the ideas there are entirely yours and they're, it's just really well put together. Of course, we've, we posted this, I think, on our Twitter in the past, but um, you could, I'm sure you could find it. Um, We'll, we'll link to it again in this uh, episode description, if you're so curious. Uh, But anyway, that's, yeah, that's very cool. This all really does connect a lot with some of the themes and ideas that are happening in this episode. Um, And it's just like a wonderful, yeah, wonderful ideas to explore for an episode. So this episode, let's go ahead and just run down the credits, I think. It's the 10th episode in season five. It's called First Snow. It was directed by Daniel Atias who directed the episodes Revelations and Three Doctors. It was That was the... Um, Three Doctors was the season premiere here. And he'll continue to direct in this season, I think a couple episodes in season six as well. The writers, Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, who of course have brought us so many wonderful episodes of Northern Exposure. They're kind of, uh, you know, head writers, I would assume, for Northern Exposure now. And the air date, December 13th, 1993. And actually the next episode of... Of Northern Exposure doesn't air until January of '94, so this is sort of the Christmas time episode, you would say, before they go on a go on a break, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's definitely fitting—first snow, and there definitely is snow in this episode. At the start of the episode, everyone is like getting excited for it, and it isn't yet snowing. I think there's actually a scene with Chris when he's like. You know, we don't see any uh, snow yet, but I, can, I think I can make out some clouds coming this way. You know, they're like hopeful for it, even though there's, it's not happening, they just know it's coming.
2: Yeah, it's definitely got that touch of Diane Furlov and Andrew Schneider right there. Mm. You can I think that like they've obviously already know how northern exposure runs. But by the end of the episode and the way it ends and the way the whole thing is being played out, you can tell, like, yeah, this is some pretty experienced stuff. <laughs> like yeah. this is some pretty we're prototypical in, classic northern exposure. We're in good hands when
3: they when you see those credits come up on the screen. And it definitely feels like a very comfortable um, control of of the material here, of the town, of the characters.
2: Yeah, just so many of the themes being interlaced throughout there. But let's start it all off with mm-hmm. the beginning shot of the episode, which is going to be Joel driving in his truck. He is going to be visiting a patient. He is visiting, what is her full name? Uh, Nedra, what is her full name? Is Aren't it she, Landry?
3: I think you're right. Yeah, they say her full name. I wrote it down. Nedra... I don't know if we get it in this first scene, but uh, Nedra Larkin.
2: Nedra Larkin. Larkin. Yeah, there we go.
3: But I wanted to, uh, I put it in my notes and I was like, oh, what, Joel's driving like this old junker of a pickup truck. Like I've never seen this truck before. Of course it strikes me, duh. I mean, we just finished an episode recently when his truck catches on fire and explodes. (laughs) So of course he can't drive that old truck, the previous truck. Now he has a I would assume it's like a loner. It's a really junky truck, but maybe that's just his new truck going forward.
2: Yeah. Well, he's driving it over into Nedra's place, which if you notice is not only filled with a lot of dogs. So we got uh, Doggo Watch happening <laughs> in 2022. Yeah. We are recording this now in the new year. Uh, <laughs> it's filled with a lot of dogs and it's filled with a lot of smoked salmon right outside yeah. our place. It's so much of it. Yeah, it's, she's uh, yeah. I, you know, she she. I guess she's
3: introduced as sort of an a, a ditterod racer because uh, she's got all the huskies, but she must also have a pretty hefty side business of a uh, of selling locks and sam- smoked salmon because that's also. I mean, Joel's there as a doctor, as a physician first, but um, he does he does buy some or he does like receive some belly locks from from Nedra. In fact. Um, you know, he he compliments her. He says, "This is Nova. I've never heard of that before, but I think that's just a a very fine piece of smoked salmon. They call it Nova, and uh, he he says, like, you know, Zabar's in New York. They would be honored to sell this at like seventeen dollars, eighteen dollars a pound, which sounds kind of ridiculous, right? That's really expensive. But um, could you guess, Charles, how much Zabar's? Is charging for Nova Salmon today.
2: I'm guessing a lot because I know that Zay... <laughs> like, I, I have two pieces, two key pieces of information <laughs> that are helping me. One is that I know that Zaybars is a very fancy place. Uh, two, they're in New York, so things are going to be a little bit more pricier. And I guess three, I, I said two. But the third thing would be, like, I've bought Salmon Jerky before, mm. once in my life, without reading the price tag. Oh uh, that is a mistake. I will never make again. I think I slapped down like fifty bucks. Oh my god! Like gosh. when I went to the register, they were like, "That will be like fifty dollars." I was like, <laughs> "What?" Like, <laughs> so I know that salmon, especially like preserved salmon of this nature, can be very expensive.
3: Well, Charles, you're not too far off because uh, right now on the website, Zabar's has hand sliced Nova salmon for fifty nine dollars a pound. Hey, so, yeah. All was, right, yeah. Definitely, in, definitely inflated in price since this 1993 episode. Do you like eating,
2: um, like salmon bagels?
3: Yeah. You know, um, I don't think that's my, that's not like my go-to for a bagel. I just like a, you know, good old everything bagel with some cream cheese. But, uh, I definitely delight in sort of the smoked salmon preparation with the capers and the red onion and all that on top of it
2: every once in a while. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I haven't had it in years, but like after watching this episode, I really want to eat some. Uh, What I thought was really interesting in this scene is that whenever Joel enters into the building, he says like, "Where uh, where does the term mushing come from? And Nedra replies back that, it actually comes from like a corruption of a old French word and that some old sourdough misheard it. <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting right here on two different levels. One, it invokes the imagery again of food, sourdough bread, mm-hmm. which kind of goes along with bagels. And two, I like the idea of um, there was like an original thing, but then after years of time of it getting worn down, it just loses its original meaning and mm. actually turns into something that's not quite what was originally intended. So it invokes a lot of imagery of uh, time, of yeah. how things continuously can change, right there. And I thought it was a very important detail for her character to lay the foundations of this right at the beginning of the episode.
3: It's pretty good. Also, sourdough. I'm not a baker myself, but my partner uh, has definitely been baking and experimenting with sourdough. And if, from my understanding, I think you have to start it with, you don't know, have to like start a ferment and it takes time for that starter to begin and then that can go on to create loaves of bread. But it's definitely not something where you can just put the dough together and bake it. You have to like let it ferment for a certain amount of time. Mm. So that's another um, fermentation It's itself is a change over time. Right, for
2: sure. yeah, good catch right there. But yeah, Nedra lays down the linchpin for this episode. She says that in next week's time, she will be dying. It is the rare present tense sentence that once it becomes true, stays true forever. Mm. That's not mine. I lifted that from someone else. That's not it's, me. That's uh,
3: John Green, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Uh, yeah, it, it is a pretty powerful statement. And of course, Joel, not from, you know, he's sort of, uh, what's the word? He's like... Everyone else in town thinks this is just like, yeah, of course Nedra can just predict when she's going to die. Um, Joel, of course, being the outsider here is more, you know, disturbed or not disturbed, but just he, he as a doctor has a mission to make that statement that Nedra said be you know, untrue. You know, he's going to make sure she lives next week. She doesn't die. Uh, because according to him, she's uh, she's pretty healthy, right?
2: Yeah. he's. Uh, I just realized he's going to make her a liar, just like <laughs> Shelley's being a liar. Yeah. There's a lot.
3: Yeah. There's a lot going on here that I think it really does. I think whatever you were talking about, sourdough starters and just the corruption of that French word, marché to mushing, definitely reminded me a lot of you know, I think this is all tying for me into Maurice's plot line. But I guess it's it's time now to sort of diverge in the plot lines. We, we just set up the episode with Joel and Nedra here, which is certainly its own plot line. We also have Maggie sort of redecorating her apartment, which we haven't gotten into yet. We have uh, Maurice and Shelley uh, going through some sort of past memories And uh, misremembering things, perhaps. Is there there more in this episode? Or are those the three main?
2: Those are the three main. And even Maggie's, I would argue, is like extremely minor. So we're actually just left with like two major plot lines and Mm -hmm. one minor plot line. Well, should we start with the smallest or should we save that for last? Uh, That's very interesting because we can either go, um, we can go smallest uh, then like, second smallest and then the largest, or we can start with like second largest smallest and then the largest. Actually, I like, I was going to say we could do that where we do like, (laughs) we sort of get into the
3: meat of it, take a little, take a little break and just focus on this small storyline and then really wrap it all together uh, so wait, what does that translate to? Cause I don't even know what we're so, talking about
2: now. That what would are, translate. Uh, let's, let's, let's put our first definitive line? terms. <laughs> yeah. So let's go with Shelly okay. and yeah. Maurice first, and then we're going to move into Maggie and then we're going to top it all off with Joel and Nedra's plotline. Setting it up, calling the shot. Uh, we're
3: starting with Maurice and Shelly, as we said, let's see the first scene we get. Uh, well, before we go into that, I just want to quickly talk about, um, cause this isn't really ascribed to a particular plot line, but it does it is the thing that we see right after the opening title credits. Chris is broadcasting from outside KB again with his headset. and this is what I was talking about earlier where um you know he 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 trusts that w- snow is coming soon. There's no clouds on the s- horizon, but we know that it's going to snow, I think tonight or something or it's like it's coming very soon. and uh, he wishes a Bonny vert to the listeners on K-Bear. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the musician Bonnie Bear in this episode. Are you familiar, <laughs> Charles, with this this whole thing? Uh you know Bonnie Bear's music, right?
2: I <laughs> I have not listened to any Bonnie Bear song. The, the only thing I know about Bonnie Bear is that there's a there's like this SNL sketch where um, there's like Jay-Z and Beyoncé are being played by SNL cast members. And they have a a butler but it they they call him white butler cuz it's played by Andy Samberg and the the joke of this is that they say that like they don't understand Bonnie Bear's music but white butler's really into it and like it always cuts like Andy Samberg, He's, like jamming out just, like really into it that's like the only thing i know about Bonnie Bear i've you know i haven't listened to a lot of Bon
3: Iver, but I've certainly, I think I get the vibe and I, I like, I like what I've heard and I've heard a lot of collaborations actually with Bon Iver. So he's musically in a lot of different groups, it seems. But anyway, Bon Iver, the musician, Justin Vernon is a, a huge fan of Northern Exposure. And in fact, takes the name for his musical act, Bon Iver. The name is taken from this episode. It actually comes <laughs> on <the> Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> The Wikipedia entry says, uh, derives from the French phrase taken from a greeting on Northern Exposure. Um, And it turns out, I think he was like really sick at a certain point in his uh, life, maybe early career. And he was just holed up watching Northern Exposure DVDs. And he just watched maybe the entire series, like being sick for some amount of time.
2: Yeah. We should have reached out to him. for this episode. Why didn't we on do email, that? If you're, I mean, if he's listening, are you listening to the podcast? You can, <laughs> I mean, he
3: seems uh, like an know, esoteric fellow. Yeah, let us know your your feelings if you want them known on this podcast. We're happy to uh, be a mouthpiece for you. But no, he's uh, he's also, I thought something else that was interesting. He's got a tattoo of Sicily on um, on his body, I think on his arm. And uh, it was actually like a fan designed tattoo. He opened like a contest to have like people submit designs for this tattoo that would be Northern Exposure themed. And um, yeah, pretty cool. You can look that up online as well. It's got a very, um, what's that artist's name? Alphonse Mucha. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but Alphonse Mucha, this uh, Czech painter, Art Nouveau painter. Um, it's, it's got the, the tattoo that Bonnie has, Justin Vernon, I suppose, uh, has that, that style of that artist. And it, Features Sicily with the word Sicily. Um, yeah, I think he's just uh, he's been quoted as saying this is a really important thing to me. I don't know how to express that exactly. It's a TV show, but it weirdly explained my life to me. Sicily is the metaphor for that. So yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I would. I mean, I don't think he's a, I don't think he's alone in saying that northern exposure has changed your life. You know, it definitely changed mine. I saw it in high school and. Uh yeah, I think I think especially fans of the show sometimes are really, really big fans if you do watch the show.
2: I think that's really interesting that the show really spoke to him right there. But if you uh, Yeah, I know it's documented on his Wikipedia, <laughs> but I don't know how many people know that he's a giant fan of yeah. Northern Exposure.
3: Yeah, I don't think that's uh I guess big fans of Boniver would would see like oh he got his name from Northern Exposure cool but that I doubt that most people who even know that have actually seen Northern Exposure because it is so hard to it's funny that it says <laughs> it's funny that it says when he was sick he watched the DVDs which is literally the only way to watch it unless you had it um, taped back when it broadcast so yeah back in the day he he could only watch DVDs he had them thankfully um, okay well. Go
2: ahead, Charles. Ah, uh, no, we—it's probably not going to be on the pod, but I, I think the sketch with like that Jay Z thing—I'm almost positive that Boney Bear actually appears and he like walks off into the woods. They gave him like the punchline is uh, like he's such a weird fella that he just like walks into the woods to go record <laughs> his uh his volumes of music. So it seems like something like Sounds he would right. stumble upon yeah. like DVDs of Northern Exposure. It would really connect to him. Yeah, this—the
3: anecdote that I first heard was that he watched. He was like in a cabin that had just like Northern Exposure DVDs there and he watched them all because it was like one of the only things that was there. I don't know if that's true. It was not corroborated on the Wikipedia entry. (laughs) And I, I uh, unfortunately I didn't like try to do that deep dive again and figure this out because I remember the first time I heard this, I was kind of blown away, which was kind of, I think it was after we had started our podcast that I, I didn't even know that he had named, um, he had named his musical act after, uh, inspired by Northern Exposure. But, um, Anyway, that's probably, you know, there's, there's enough, there's plenty more we could say on that, but this episode we should start focusing on, um, is let's go into, as we were trying to do, Shelly and Maurice's plot line here.
2: Okay. So the first shot of Shelly that we're going to get this episode is her walking down the street. Uh, her belly is going to be featured prominently in this shot. What makes this really interesting is that we haven't talked about it yet, but this is coming off of the heels of Joel discussing death. So mm. we're getting a parallel right there. Immediately after death, we're seeing birth. We're seeing it in the form of Shelley's pregnant belly. And she goes down the street of Sicily and Maurice hells her down and says, like, hey, Shelley, come in here. I got I got a like a gift for you, for you and your child. And he gives her a silver I don't you know what to call it. A rattle toy. Rattler? Yeah, a little rattler right there. But that's <laughs> not the important thing. The important thing is that he's saying, like, I know things must be awkward between us because of our prior relationship and, you know, how much you loved me. And Shelly corrects him and says, hang on, I never said I loved you.
3: Yeah. You might wonder how I can be so generous to you and hauling is what uh, Maurice says, given our history um, that we once, you were, I think he says you once belonged to me. You said you loved me. Of course, Shelly is kind of taken aback by this and uh, lays down some truth here, or perhaps a lie as we find out. But she says, I never said that. I didn't say I loved you. I never said I loved you. And this is uh, a pretty low blow for Maurice here. Of course, I mean, like, you know, I feel like Maurice should uh, definitely be over this relationship at this point, And there's no need to bring it up again, but maybe because he is so over it, it just shows that he they can talk openly about these kind of things. I guess I don't know what what exactly is going on with their relationship, but it is um, strange, but also I guess very powerful when Shelley says, "I never said I loved you." It really, um, I don't know. It just kind of like causes this strong ripple in Maurice's memory in his past that just
2: spreads all the way into
3: present day Maurice and sends him into this spiral.
2: Right, beautifully said right there. I thought what was also really interesting is his language choice, his uh, choice of words. He uses words like fecund and apropos of which. And later on, he's going to use the word detritus. These are really large words to be spoken to a um, 20, 21 year old they just a very young yeah. woman However, right here. Um, ordinarily, I don't think Maurice actually uses those types of words. That usually is reserved for someone like, uh, I don't know, like Chris right there. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was a, a purposeful choice to demonstrate the age difference between these two characters. To be like, look at this fella who knows all of these large words. And look at this young woman who might not know what he's talking about. Or if he's just feeling particularly uh, sentimental And he's wanting to be hyper-specific on the Mm. words that he wants to use. Because those words are like very specific. Uh, They are trying to translate his exact wording. So I can see both ways working.
3: Yeah, I thought specifically that word fecund or fecund. I'm not sure how you say it. I I had to Google that. I've I've heard it be pronounced like fecund. Well... I was like, so he says, whenever Shelly enters K-Bear, she's got, I think her belly's even bigger now, you know, with the costuming or whatever that prosthetic belly is going on. It seems very big now visually. And uh, he says to her, you're looking fecund, bountiful. And I wrote down, only a thesaurus would say that. Like no <laughs> one no one speaks like that. It, also, it just sounds kind of gross, fecund. But you know, producing uh, it means producing or capable of producing an abundance of offspring or new growth. Fertile. So calling someone fertile is kind of weird, especially if it's Maurice saying this to Shelley for some reason. But uh, but no, yeah, it is very um, you know very specific language that maybe on top of what you're saying, like it it, it maybe demonstrates a uh, age difference between the two, but also it could just be the tools of the writers trying to maybe that's what you're getting at as well, Charles trying to. Um, set up some some different word, imagery, wordplay that will maybe continually um, surface and harmonize throughout the episode, I guess.
2: Yeah, there's also one last thing I want to add is that mm-hmm. he says that after he heard that, he was so happy he cooked duck a la orange. Mm-hmm. He, he cooked some sort of fancy duck. Yeah. Um, and the important thing is that he's, the uh, imagery of food is being brought back again. We're going to see that throughout the entire episode, just imagery of food. Yeah, got it, got it.
3: Okay, well, let's hop on to the next uh, scene with Maurice. It's actually Chris and Maurice. Chris hops right into K-Bear and Maurice is at his desk going through some old boxes. Chris is like, come on, man, I'll buy you a drink. Let's go, let's hit hit the brick. And um, Maurice is kind of in a very um, introspective, retrospective mood, kind of like looking at his past. And he asks Chris to pull down this box on the top shelf marked S it's, as you said, you mentioned this, Charles, it's the detritus of my two weeks with Shelley Marie Tambo, says Maurice, the most beautiful time I've ever spent in my entire life. Chris uh, says, okay, you're going for a little Proustian reconstruction, like trying to look through these old articles from the past to, to jog your memory and bring it back to life. Maurice says he's looking for proof that Shelley loved him, or said that at least.
2: Right, and he also says that, like, he's looking for one specific thing, That she said right after they got a late dinner, again, going back into food right there. But I know that we talked about this before on the podcast, um, the Proustian Reconstruction, Mm -hmm. uh, it being a reference to In Search of Lost Time with Mm -hmm. the little Madeleine. Yeah, the little... um Pastry type thing. Yeah, uh, I, I don't remember what episode that was, but it seems like that seems like something they really like invoking a lot. Yeah. And I, we don't have to read the entire passage over again. But basically, for people who forgot, it's a collection of like short stories in this novel that is trying to piece together the memories of this guy's life. And in one of them, he eats like this uh, this pastry. And once he eats it, it just he gets all of these memories to surge back into him. And he suddenly remembers how things were in the past, how his childhood was, like the honey colored memories that are staying within it. So that's what Chris is trying to tell Maurice of what he's trying to do, because he's looking through this uh, treasure box full of memories. He's trying to find a thing that will bring him back into that moment of happiness that eludes him. And he's hoping to recapture it. Even though, as we see, both the idea fails and also the item that he is looking for fails him on that front as well. Since it's just a napkin with a heart on it, it doesn't say, I love you.
3: Yeah, a little smiley face drawn on a heart is drawn in lipstick. Uh, and so, yeah, that just goes to show that this memory is, is not real. It is a fantasy that maybe he, his mind created. Uh, he, he doesn't remember it exactly how it went down. Though he's, I don't know, I think he's still searching because he's still, I think at this point, he still believes that Shelley did say, I love you at some point, but he keeps running into these roadblocks and failures of trying to bring this memory to reality. That's something that's lost in the past now. Was it ever real? Perhaps he's starting to ask himself. Well, actually, I think I wanted, I wrote this down when you were talking. I think uh, that episode where they're talking about Proustian recall was maybe homesick in season four, episode 20. Might've been homesick. It's been a while since we covered that. But that definitely is an episode, even if they don't talk about Proust in that episode, that is an episode where there is a lot of Maurice's childhood, again, like his past brought up.
2: And immediately after that scene, we're transitioning to Holly and Shelly waking up to a brand new day. Shelly wakes up and checks herself out in the mirror to make sure everything's okay. But to her surprise, she thinks that her nose is growing. And at this point... I didn't make the connection mm-hmm. that it was like a Pinocchio reference. <laughs> I, just, I, I didn't know what was exactly what was weird, going on.
3: Crazy, wacky stuff is happening in Sicily right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that like happens all the time. I was like, ah, oh, some must be some like crazy hijinks. I mean, somebody's about to die in this episode. It's yeah. not like that crazy. <laughs> well, you know, at this
3: point, we don't know that Shelly actually, like if you're watching this for the first time, we don't know that that was a lie. We thought that maybe, wow, maybe Maurice had just kind of invented this memory in his head. Um, but I think now we're starting to think, okay, does Shelly feel guilty for lying? Is that a symbol here? If you make that Pinocchio connection, perhaps? Um, yeah, I think that's definitely what's going on in this scene. I also wanted to point out the beginning of the scene when, when Hauling and Shelly are waking up, it's, they're woken up by an alarm clock. The clock is set to 7.30 AM, which I think, uh, that's a little too late to be waking up if you're if you're running the brick, right? What day is it? Is it like a Sunday maybe? It could be Sunday. Or maybe Dave's just already down there, who knows.
2: It can't be. It can't it, be. Sunday. They definitely go to work cuz like <laughs> later on the next scene is them at work. So it's yeah. definitely a work day.
3: Well, maybe maybe it's one of those days where they open they open a little later, but I, I feel like the brick is open for breakfast, you know? I feel like uh it's, you got to be open by 7:30, so that that's a little weird unless my only defense here for the show could be that Dave is already down there, you know, cooking and doing like a one-man band type thing. But mm. they got a little late a little late start, I think, with that 730 <laughs> alarm clock.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about them being at the brick yeah. because Shelly is over there missing out on orders. She's looking out the window. Uh, wait, hang on. Did we skip something? I think that was right. We didn't skip something, but I just realized that there is a line in there that says like, hey, you've been looking out that window for a while for like, doesn't he say multiple days? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. Wait, hold on. It is multiple days afterwards because she says that Morty's hasn't been in the brick for two days.
3: Yeah. Oh, since she told him that, that lie, perhaps.
2: Yeah. So it's got to be like, maybe that was like a day in which the brick wasn't open. <laughs> it's possible yeah yeah who knows <laughs> it's weird but but anyway yeah, what ahead. yeah what i'm trying to get out of this is that is that hasn't shown up for a while he usually shows up every single day for his uh bowl with tinas <laughs> and shelly is worried that something has now irreparably damaged their relationship he won't return back to the brick he won't return to back to how things were which i'm going to talk about this more as we finally get into that but i i find the problem if my, with me with this episode is actually within that idea. But before we get there, what's really nice is that we get another order of food. We get like lots of different things, breakfast burritos, links of sausages, oh, yeah. all of these stuff, just like imagery of food all over again. I didn't
3: write down this order, but it's a lot. And uh, But I did write down the very first order we see in the episode, which was earlier on, Walt, he's in the brick. He's got an amazing order of food. It's pigs in a blanket cheddar cheese omelet, home fries, a double order, a double order of biscuits and gravy and extra have, thick chocolate shake. Have you ever done that before in your life? Have you ever like double no, ordered something? I've, I guess like a drink, you could that's common people order doubles, but no, I've never doubled up. That's insane, but uh Walt's trying to reach his 8,000 calories cuz it's the idea of like hibernation in a way, you want to bulk up for the winter. That's Walt is a pretty skinny guy, so and he's old, so I imagine if imagine he died immediately after eating that. <laughs> no, he, he maybe needs to bulk up a little. He needs a little. That's also fat.
2: like an insane <laughs> amount to bulk up. Isn't like yeah. the human, like the average human, like two thousand calories per day. Yeah, so he's quadrupling. Four that. times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but
3: we get some amazing food orders. You gotta you gotta appreciate that. And there is a little bit with hauling right after this, but I think that's probably more suited for. Joel's plotline it kind of fits in more with like death and, and things like that so
2: yeah it's, let's just try to remember that one because I feel yeah. like we might forget it but let's make a mental note to return <laughs> back to that one as we go on to the next scene involving Shelly which is going to be her in Joel's office mm-hmm. she's worried she's saying like hey, like, what's going on? Is my nose actually getting bigger and bigger? And Joel says, like, it's probably just, like, pregnancy-related. You know, this type of thing, it happens all the time. Yeah. Well, first he's like, no,
3: I don't think that's very likely, Shelley. Like, the human nose doesn't really grow. And he's like, well, like, maybe it's possible. Like, uh, because of hormonal changes in your body, he says certain parts of your body, like breasts, get bigger. Obviously, your tummy gets bigger um, because there's a baby in there. But uh, he says maybe it could be related to pregnancy. Does he say Pinocchio in this scene? Uh, she does. She does, okay.
2: Well, like, I think she invokes a person and Joel connects the dots. He's like, <laughs>
3: Pinocchio? Yeah, so if we haven't caught on to that yet, now, now we're starting to think about that because they're saying Pinocchio at this point. I think that's pretty much that short little scene there. But before Joel actually goes into the office to see Shelley, you know, he's walking into his office and he sees Marilyn um she's like, you know, Shelley's waiting for you back there. Marilyn's got a box uh delivered to her and Joel's like, "Ooh, what you got?" And it's paper clips and he she opens the box. It's literally just filled with paper clips. No packaging. It's just paper clips in this uh <laughs> I don't know how how you would met, like what is that like a it's a pretty sizable box
2: just filled to the rim with paper clips. It's supposed to last her all winter. So, there you go. It's one of those things I was going to say where like you like open it and you just like sink your entire hand into it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. It's like a swimming pool of, of paper clips going on. The next scene is really cool. I think it's with Maurice sitting out in his gazebo. And if you remember earlier in the episode, he mentions that when Shelley said "I love you," she was like she had said it. You you said it to me in the gazebo, don't you remember? So this is probably the same, the very same gazebo, I think as we figure out later, this is the gazebo where Maurice has this memory of Shelley saying, I love you. And I just wanna commend them on like the time of day when they shot this. It's so beautiful as like the sun is sort of getting lower on the horizon. Like Chris is coming to join Maurice Maurice is sitting out in the gazebo. And as Chris like enters the gazebo, the sun is like causing all these crazy lens flares that look really beautiful. And when Chris sits down, it's just super foggy as well. So it's kind of like this crazy time of day when there's uh, dense fog and um, beautiful golden sunlight washing over. Yeah, Chris is there to sort of collect Maurice. I think they were supposed to go fishing maybe. And um, Maurice is just shut off. Like he's... Uh, he's just kind of trapped in in this depression feeling, I think.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful scene with a kind of not beautiful message that's going on with Oh, it is a freaking, <laughs> wy- yeah, this is such a weird, I actually- It is wild. It's weird, but
3: I kind of like it. And I'll talk about why I think it's, it's. I mean, it is, yeah, on the surface, it seems very bad. But I think it's pretty interesting Writing and and let me try to
2: let me try to explain. Let me try to got a lot to unpack right here. there. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be but, a lot. But um, go ahead, go ahead. Before I get into that, I just want to bring up one more small little detail. Okay, Chris is coming over because they want to go to the Badger Pass so that they can go get a moose. They can go um, oh. hunt a moose so that they can get his meat and store him for winter. Mm, that's what it is.
3: But yeah, there we go. Right, not only food, um, but also. You know, preparing for this for this first snow and hibernation, yeah. But what's happening in this scene, um, apart from just that, Maurice uh, sort of well, let's see. I think I've got a soundbite here. But Maurice sort of uh, explains this whole this misery that he's suffering through.
1: My romance with Shelley, I'd always thought of it as a jewel, a precious jewel that I'd put in a box and locked away for safekeeping. Now I discover that that jewel was nothing but paste. It's not so much that Shelly denied loving me. The real pain comes from the fact that I was so needful that I concocted a fantasy romance. I convinced myself that she professed her love for me right here in this gazebo. Well, Maurice, there's a lot to be said for self-delusion when it comes to matters of the heart. I knew this guy when I was growing up, Donnie. He had this obsessive love thing for this chick, June Ann, she just didn't feel the same about him. Yeah? Yeah, so, you know, he stalked her for a while, he caught her day and night, he camped out in front of her house, you know, all the usual stuff, right? She puts a restraining order out against him, and he has to come to terms with the fact that she just doesn't dig him, and I tell you, man, it was a big blow for him. So, the next day, he gets his 9 millimeter and a couple extra clips, he goes down to the donut shop where she works, right? And, well, you get the picture, right? What the hell's all this got to do with me? I'm just saying that everybody would have been a lot healthier and happier if Donnie would have convinced himself that she loved him. Because, Maurice, we all need a little fantasy once in a while.
3: All right, so there's definitely a lot going on there, especially towards the end. But just to quickly break it down, Maurice has accepted now that he's created a delusion in in his memory. This is all something that he's concocted and it's blown up in his face now. But um Chris's anecdote that he shares is not a solution at all for Maurice on the surface, but it does raise a very interesting thought that you know, he's suggesting that we all need a little fantasy in our lives. Like we should all lie to ourselves. Is that something, is that like an actual good bit of advice? Um, On the surface, it sounds ridiculous. And it's just like, okay, this is just kooky Northern exposure logic that's going on. And of course, by the end of the storyline, we'll figure it out somehow, but this can't be the solution, right? But it is a very powerful question, an interesting idea that you know, maybe we all need to lie to ourselves every once in a while. This reminded me of another bite that I've got in my head, but it's, it's uh, tangential enough that I think it fits. It's from the movie Adaptation. Do you remember this movie, Charles? Uh, is that the one with Nicolas Cage? Nicolas Cage plays uh, Charlie Kaufman, the writer, and he also plays Charlie Kaufman's fictional twin brother. So Nicolas Cage is playing two characters in this scene that I'm about to play hey. for
2: you. Oh, go ahead. I, I Okay. So like the memory I have of this is like super distinct and small, but like, I think we were in high school and you invited me over to your house and I, I opened the door and your your, your dad was watching the, the television and I was like, Hey, um, what, what are y'all watching? And he's like, Oh, it's that scene in the adaptation where like he's going through the Creek or something. And it's Clothes are completely wet. He's like submerged in the creek. And there's like a narrator that's like talking over it. Yeah. And I was like, what's going on in this movie? Like, what is it? And you were like, oh yeah, it's like uh, it's like Nick Cage doing like, yeah, it's like two Nick Cages in this film. I was like, What? Like, it's <laughs> a lot going <laughs> that's on. That's my in that only movie as well. Yeah, it's <laughs> my only memory of adaptation.
3: Well, there's a scene towards the end where they talk about um, things that are I think a little applicable here. Maybe not directly, but I'll, I'll play the soundbite now. It was his
1: time in high school. I was watching you out the library window. You were talking to Sarah Marsh. Oh, God, I was so in love with her. I know, and and you were flirting with her, and she was being really sweet to you. I remember that. And then, when you walked away, she started making fun of you with Kim Kennedy. It was like they were they were laughing at me. You didn't know it all? You seemed so happy. I knew. I heard them. <laughs> Well, how come you were so happy? I love Sarah, Charles. It was mine, that love. I owned it. Even Sarah didn't have the right to take it away. I can love whoever I want.
0: She thought you were pathetic.
1: <laughs> that was her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves you. That's what I decided a long time ago.
3: So that's an interesting anecdote that I think sort of applies similarly here in in that soundbite. One of the characters was madly in love with another character that thought he was an idiot and it didn't matter to him. He didn't care if she loved him back. It was some love that he had inside of him that he preserved. Sounds a little weird as well, but I think it ties in with this idea of self-delusion, as Chris says, but I don't know. Where, where do you stand on that? What hmm. does that make you think about this scene and this whole idea?
2: Uh, I just I'm coming off of the um, I'm just not coming off of the wings of watching Five Hundred Days of Summer, hmm. and I, I I watch it every single year. It's not that I'm particularly deep in love with the film. I do really like the film, but it's just that like every time I rewatch it, I usually learn something new, and also the lessons within are really uh, personal and valuable to me. So I just want to hammer them into myself every single time, like, you know, like a robot in need of replacement batteries or something like that. <laughs> but I find that like, you know, uh, that behavior of what you think a relationship is, is like, it can be super self-destructive if you're the one that's like, you know, running the table. If you're saying like, I get to decide whether or not, you know, this is a relationship and not mm-hmm. accounting for the other person's feelings on it, because ultimately it always comes down to that. So I think that like, Yeah. When I heard Chris's story, I was like, that is a deeply (laughs) disturbing thing. I get where he's coming from. Everyone goes through that thing where you, you know, you're just really into this individual and you believe like you would move heaven and earth for them. But like, ultimately it is incredibly toxic and unhealthy.
3: Yeah, for sure. But I don't know. I don't know if I'm getting that toxicity necessarily from that. Um, Adaptation because he's he doesn't ask for for Sarah Marshall to love him back. He doesn't care. It's just some weird romantic. In a way, it's this like fond memory, I guess, that he has. Though he doesn't share with this is actually that is a bit creepy. But I'm trying to relate it to Maurice. I think (laughs) who does have like a yeah. What do we think of Maurice's fixation on Shelley here? Like, is it even like just all of this plotline aside? Is it even okay for Maurice to? Look back fondly, I mean...
2: Well, like, let's remove it from, like, the uh, context of, like, he's really old and she's really young. <laughs> like, let's just remove that context entirely. I, I know it's unfair is, yeah. once... <laughs> it's yeah, already, once yeah. That's, yeah, that's a huge deal. But let, let's just pretend this is, like, a normal age individual right here. Uh, I mean, the way the episode presents it is that Shelly is not, like, uncomfortable with the idea that he's still... Remembering these feelings. It's not like he's uh, fanning the flames and is trying mm-hmm. to keep it alive. Or he's uh, right. he's trying to win her back. Then I would be like, all right, no, this is like totally, you know, messed up. It's just that I think what Maurice is going through is that he he believes he was so certain in the latitude and longitude of this relationship that like he believed that her feelings for him and his memories were so intact that he can't possibly be wrong. But once it's revealed that there is a core part of it that's missing or that he misremembered, he's not only having to reevaluate everything in his life. He's starting to realize like, well, if that uh, very pivotal moment was fake, then what else is fake? Yeah, it's definitely shaking
3: Maurice. And for Shelley, we get this in a later scene, but it's, it's not so much that Shelley is like, disgusted by Maurice, but she says how he was a different, almost a different person. And I definitely want to talk about that when we get to that scene, because that's a lot, another big idea that they sort of unpack. But before we do get to that scene, if it's okay, the next scene that we're moving on to is Shelley visiting Maurice, who is uh, in his, um, I guess his uh, study or something. He's still very much down on himself And um, she brings him a cake and um, Maurice is just like staring at one of those like little swinging ball toy pendulum things. And she's trying to like have a nice conversation with Maurice. It's very painfully forced on her end. It almost looks like she's about to cry, which I think is pretty, pretty great acting. Like how she's trying to force out this positive energy when this whole situation is very very sad for
2: Maurice. Yeah, I, I was just going to say there's a lot of symbolism that's happening uh, on the surface and under the surface. So obviously the one that's most in our face is that thing you were talking about where um, Maurice is playing with this pendulum thing. So it's like there's like five little balls. Maybe it's six. I can't quite remember. <laughs> but like once you let it fall and let gravity take its course, it hits the other balls. And then like they all start swinging in the other direction and then like it returns back. The balls are constantly moving. They never stop once they have momentum being placed between them. And Maurice is seeing how, like, uh, there's, like, this inevitable march of time that's occurring. Mm. And that it will just continuously keep going and going yeah. around and around. And he doesn't realize that, like you know, what if I don't want it to go round and round? What if I want it to stop? What if I want to perfectly preserve this memory right here? That's the most obvious one to me. And then the one that's underneath it is where Shelly is saying like, hey, Chris got this sweet spear from um, the shop so that he can go ice fishing. <laughs> She's literally and figuratively trying to break the ice yeah. using this conversation. <laughs> that's pretty
3: good. And I didn't even think about that, but that's the the pendulum toy is a great visual representation of this idea of wanting to try to stop this, this ever forward marching, um, perpetual, you know, movement of time. And actually in the very last action that Maurice has with the pendulum toy is he takes uh, one of the balls on either sides and drops them simultaneously to sort of stop it. Cause you were saying like, you were saying like, he wishes he could stop this and freeze it. And even that just sends like a, if you've ever done that, it sort of sends like this the, it sends the momentum back out either way. So they're, you know, kind of fizzles out, but they shoot back outward whenever you fling them towards the center. Um, that's pretty cool. The ending is pretty great. I think it, it really cements what's going on because Shelley says, boy, Maurice, I am really glad that we are okay and everything is tits. And then she leaves <laughs> and it's completely, you know, the subtext of this is totally uh, unaligned with the, what the actual sentence is saying it's it couldn't be further from the truth i guess
2: yeah i mean it's just like that scene in 500 days like right at the beginning of the film where they're breaking up and like summer's like hmm these uh, these pancakes are delicious i'm really glad we're having this conversation and like it's it, it, it's coming off the heels of uh her just breaking up with tom so like <laughs> Tom is like stared off in the middle distance that's pretty good too yeah <laughs> Uh, But returning back onto the plotline, the next time we see Shelly is going to be outside the brick and she's joined by Ed. We got the youth duo once again. I've (laughs) talked about this before at the premiere of season five where Ed is talking with Shelly. They both comfort each other. And I always like this pairing because they're both incredibly young and they're at the precipice. They're at the entrance of the universe and they're trying to see where life is heading for them. And in this regard, Shelly is... She's just unsure of what she's doing with this lie and she talks to ed and says like you know you're sort of like a priest you kind of dabble in healing <laughs> is there anything that you could do to absolve me of this and it's like i don't think it works that way but i can try to relate your pain using a story and he tells this uh pretty morbid story <laughs> and Ultimately, from what I'm, you know, from what I'm gathering, is it like there isn't really a lot that's helping her. Not even this story, this parable is helping her get through this.
3: Yeah. Shelley
2: needs Ed the Shaman
3: and he tells her a story. I think he says Leonard sometimes will tell stories to help people feel better. And uh, yeah, the story that he tells doesn't offer a lot of help. As you said, it's um, from a movie. I think it's called The Return of Martin Gurr probably pronounced that wrong, but it stars Gerard Depardieu. And he tells this big lie saying that he's someone that he's not. So we can maybe see the connection here with Shelley's lie. And, well, she says, okay, well, you know, what, what's what's the ending? Like, what's the solution? What happens with that guy? And Ed says, well, the whole town turns against him and he's burned at the stake. Seems like there's a moral in there somewhere <laughs> is what Ed says, but, uh, but <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, I think it's mostly trying to say like, well, you got to kind of take things into your own hand. You can't really try to leave things to your own devices. And we can see that play out in the next scene, okay, yeah. which is where Maurice is kind of doing that. We see that he's got this, um, what is that, like a crane? It's How like one you of those, um,
3: dang it, I just <laughs> I just blanked as well. It's one of those little construction machines. It's uh, not a steamroller, but it functions as like one of those, gosh, we're big old idiots because we don't know Uh, but he's got this little destruction device demolition uh, vehicle and he's going to break down the gazebo Uh, in fact he does and he runs it over crushing it and then he puts the vehicle in reverse and reverses over the crushed gazebo (laughs) Shelly like runs out of nowhere to try to stop him and I've just got a really short sound bite that I have to play I'll play it real fast
0: is a lie i'm gonna
2: bury it (laughs) i like how he says that like the past is a lie i i think it's funny because it places a lot of stress on the um on the lie part so if you like break it down by syllables it's inherently (laughs) funny so like that's exactly how you would make a punchline
3: yeah the delivery and the stress of the of the phrases, yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so it's actually a very poignant scene in some sections because Shelley is saying like, the reason I lied is because at the present, I'm deeply in love with Holly. But in the past, I also loved you. But I don't really like that past self. I don't want to be that past self. I want to be now. I want to be what I am currently. And the idea of returning back to the past is just... Uh, not something I ever want to get back to, which is kind of like a positive mindset. Like you should always be looking forward. You should be trying to live in the moment rather than looking toward the future or remaining in the past. So I can applaud Shelly for that idea. But the thing that I find a little bit strange in this is that after all this happens and she reveals the truth to Holling that, I mean, to Maurice that she loves him, that he becomes so ecstatic. He, he returns back. He says like, hang on, let's get back to the original point. Yeah. <laughs> you said you loved me? And then Maurice says that like he can look himself into the mirror, and Shelley says, and does that mean you'll return back to the brick and everything will be like it used to be? And Maurice says like, yeah, it will be. And I vehemently disagree with that idea. I think that once the mirror fractures, once it has all the splintering that goes across the glass surface, it can never be repaired again. That's true in many ways, but particularly in this way. Like, it's There is no way that it will return back to the past. You cannot return back to that. Once a moment is gone, like I said in the beginning, it's not perfectly preserved in glass. It's just a mirror for your own self-reflection. So Maurice is either A, lying to her to comfort her, or B, laboring under the delusion that you can remain in the past. Both of which I don't agree with. I don't think you should lie to her about that. And if you also don't realize it, I think you do need to realize that. And I don't think the episode should have ended with that idea.
3: Well, it's possible there's a third option, but I don't think it's necessarily supported here, but a positive way to look at it. Well, you set it up already. Basically, Shelley says all this stuff and has this whole revelation and Maurice is like, whoa, hold on, hold on. Enough of that. Like, But, but the, the truth is you did say I love you, right? And he's like, good, perfect. So it seems like he learned no lesson with her, but uh, it could also, if you look at it positively, it could also be that Maurice has has already gone through this and, you know, as much as he cherishes that memory of the past, he can already, he maybe before Shelley has even got there, is already like, oh, that's a past Maurice, that's not me today. Me today is a friend of Holling and a friend of Shelley, you know, because he gives her the rattle in that first scene. He's like, don't you think it's weird how me, a person who used to own you, who used to love you, you know, can now give you and give you this rattle and be supportive of you. So it's possible that he's already made himself the better person by understanding that this is, you know, an older version of himself, but... I don't know. I think you're also kind of right because everything we've seen is Maurice being afflicted by um, the this uh, past not being the current reality because um, he wants the current reality to say, Shelley... You know, have her say. Oh, I did say that way back in the day,
2: right? I, I can see where you're coming from, and I give a little <laughs> bit of partial credit, if only because I'm now realizing that he destroys the gazebo. Mm-hmm. But he only destroys the gazebo <laughs> underneath the belief that the past is fake. He has to bury he it. Des- <laughs> yeah. yeah, had he believed that he needs to put this all behind him, and he's putting, he's manifesting this into a you know a literal act of uh, destroying a memory then I could be like, all right, that's some like good character development. You know, I I see where it's coming from. But he's only doing this out of a wrong place that I feel I could be wrong. That's just my own interpretation to it. Uh, Listeners, you know, if if you believe strongly that this scene went in a different direction towards you, I'm not trying to discount that whatsoever. I'm just saying like the way that I had read the scene was in that particular manner. And that is... Like, I was on board with everything right up into that sentence of saying, like, we can return back to how things were. That's, yeah. (laughs) that is where I found fault with the statement.
3: Yeah, it does fit, like, returning back to the way things were is kind of fitting with your, um, the carousel imagery, how things always kind of go back and circle around. But I agree. I think that's kind of what the episode is trying to broadcast. However, I also agree with what you said about, you know, this is, well, this is a scene that is, super powerful and uh, it's, it is almost a universal feeling. It's a lot of these ideas of love and memory and loss that we all go through and we all can relate to very strongly. So I think, I also do think, as you said, Charles, there's a lot of ways that you could interpret this scene and by no means is, is uh, your interpretation better than someone else's, you know? So whatever it speaks to you, I think if you have a profound effect with it, I think then it's succeeded for you, you know, this
2: this story, this episode. Well, all right. Let's rewind it back down to one of the plot lines, which I am now second guessing. Mm. Should we just do Joel and then end with Maggie? No. Because the episode ends kind of... No? I was <laughs> <laughs> just saying, we had to, we called our shot, so let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Once it's inscribed in stone like the past, it can never be changed.
3: <laughs> but you're right. It does kind of close out the episode with a nice feeling, right? Uh, what was our third one? No, let's just do th- let's just do this one.
2: Yeah, let's do Maggie's. Maggie, Maggie. Okay, so let's return back to Maggie and talk about her plot line So what's going on with her is that the first scene is that she is going to be in Ruth Ann's store. She's trying to do a makeover for her place because the last winter she was there, she was kind of holed up in an area, an environment in which she did not like. It was a place that wasn't conducive to her. So she wants to change that. She wants to take a farm from the past and build onto the future. So she wants to redesign her place. Yeah, it's a really nice little
3: opening scene with Maggie because she, uh, well, she gets all these little, uh, she, she picks up all these supplies from Ruthann and Joel's also there. And she's just like gushing to Joel about how she's very excited this winter to snuggle up, get a book, like start a fire, eat some popcorn. Because like last year, You know, she was like forced to stay indoors and she just didn't like her house. But this year she's going to make her house like, you know, the place to be like the ultimate like dream image of like where she wants to spend her long winter. I've got the soundbite for it. It's a pretty nice little cozy, cozy uh, bit of language. So I'd like to play that real fast. So Flashman. Wait, soon? It's going to be 60 below, pitch
0: black, and we'll be up to our ears in snow. This makes you happy, does it? Yes, because I can hole up in my new little nest and I can read a book on my new sofa and eat bowl after bowl of popcorn and listen to the wind howl outside. Sounds like a blast. See ya. See ya.
3: I like how Joel is not as excited he says it that sounds like a blast but he says it sarcastically but i mean yeah it's the, the simple pleasures you know in life i think uh, i think we can all relate to that but maggie's going to make this year better than last
2: right and we can see her carry out that idea in the next scene which is where she gets a delivery from ed in her home it's uh this old I don't really know. Little seat, little couch furniture thing. That well. Yeah. yeah it's like New a little chair. One of those. You call it a chair. So. Right. We'll she's got this <laughs> chair right here. And she's already done some changes throughout the house. She mentioned that she's changed the color in the accent wall. She's moved some stuff around right there. And Ed takes a seat on the chair and he says he doesn't like it. But, you know, he, you know it's just, he's kind of like mulling it over.
3: Yeah, he's like, well, you know, just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's the right, you know, you just you know, try it out, you know, it's probably a, it's probably a perfect chair for you, Maggie. Um, yeah, that's basically what's going on in this scene. Just like new chair, and already Ed is uh, not a huge fan, unfortunately. The only other thing I noted in this scene was um, Ed remarks about the paint color. Uh, he says it's very saturated, kind of David Lynch. Mm. Uh, I don't, I don't know if David Lynch is. Known for saturated colors, but I guess so. I mean, like Blue Velvet, the film, invokes the color blue a lot. Um, Sure. But yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, Shout out to Dave Lynch.
2: Right. And our next scene is going to have Maggie having a new guest come over, which is going to be Chris. We haven't really got a lot of Chris in this episode, (laughs) but in this one, he's kind of just like bouncing to and fro from other plot lines. And in this one, he goes inside Maggie's house and kind of remarks on how the place is. He says that it's kind of Shavian, like George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. uh, Relates it in that manner. So already we're getting like two different people describing onto maggie's place yeah they don't say that it's like maggie's place yeah they
3: say it's someone
2: else's place
3: that's pretty good yeah because i was like i don't even know what shavian would mean like i'm not super familiar with that even how you would relate that to a house maybe to like a piece of writing but uh (laughs) um who knows and then the same thing with like david lynch colors but that's i think what's going on here is exactly what you said it's like maybe this is more attributable to another characteristic that's, you know, it's not Maggie's house. It's someone else, perhaps. She hasn't really made it her own. And um, well, you know, Chris does sit down in the chair, but before we get to that, I wanted to mention that he gives Maggie a tanka. I think that's how you pronounce it. That's like a little uh, decorative piece that he gives her to hang in her house. And um, I think it's also in this scene when Maggie says, you know, there's just something missing about, I haven't, I haven't, clocked it yet but i'll figure it out and when that happens i think it'll bring this whole piece together maybe it's like a rug or something else but she's got to figure that out and uh
2: what's that film that has that is like that key point where it's like it's the rug that ties it all oh that's um the big lebowski yeah there we go <laughs> yeah i'm peon- sorry i interrupted the rug. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: no yeah so i was gonna say it's funny because uh chris sits down in the chair and he's like huh that's weird I mean, it looks comfortable, but like the chair looks comfortable, but it's definitely not when you sit in it. And um, man, it's <laughs> sucks for Maggie because she keeps buying things that she ends up hating, like that laundry machine in the past episode that we covered. Uh, she ends up like really despising and getting rid of. And now
2: she's got this chair that's just not
3: working out for her.
2: Ah, uh, that is true. Yeah. do You've... You've read The Corrections, right, from Jonathan Franzen? Yes, yeah. We read that uh, sort of... I don't know if we did that as like a book club, but we read it close close to each other. So we kind of talked about yeah, it. Yeah, we had like a mutual friend also read it. and I, the, the reason I bring this up is because I think the very first chapter, there is like... 15 pages dedicated to a chair. Oh, yeah. It's like just talking yes. <laughs> about a chair and how comfortable it can be. <laughs> That's all I could ever think of whenever people monologue about chairs. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, it had like symbolic reasoning behind it and everything. But uh, anyway, let's take that symbolism of chairs and apply it to Northern Exposure because mm-hmm. we're going to see this play out in the very next scene, which is where Maggie is visited by her third visitor, Joel. Mm. It's at the dead of night. It's starting to become windy and snowy because you know she tries to close the door and the wind pushes it back out. I thought that was really cool. Like, Sorry, I just yeah. wanted to
3: just wanted to point out. I mean that that obviously symbolizes like the weather is changing, but I wonder if it's uh, if it means anything else. It's a very interesting choice because the door doesn't to do that on camera. It is a deliberate choice to make that happen. Like the door does doesn't do that. It's just right. on a controlled set. So
2: I like that too. I yeah. think that's a really cool thing. I, I I applaud their decision to have that. Yeah,
3: it could have been. I, I wrote down it could have been an accident, but I don't think it was an accident. But it I don't could think have, so. Could have been, but yeah, uh, but yeah,
2: <laughs> but yeah. Uh, Joe comes inside and he talks to Maggie and he notices that there's like this goldfish that she's taking care of, and he notices how they just keep doing it again and again and again and around and around. They keep swimming so, in circles, mm-hmm. yeah. He relates how, like, the reason they do so is because they forget they were even there in the first place, that they just keep going around and around, again, invoking that imagery right there. The thing that I'm drawing upon is this quote from Catcher in the Rides. It's at the very end, and Holden says... I felt so damn happy all of a sudden. The way old Phoebe kept going around and around, I was damn near bawling. I felt so damn happy, if you want to know the truth. I don't know why. It was just that she looked so damn nice, the way she kept going around and around, in her blue coat and all. God, I wish you could have been there. So, Holden realizes at this point that like adulthood keeps going to and fro, like I said because throughout the entire book, he's so worried about it becoming straight to corruption because all the adults that he's met in this book are terrible human beings and he's afraid of becoming a terrible human being. But when he sees Phoebe in her innocence going up and down on this carousel, he realizes that like life doesn't have to be that way. There's going to be good times and there's going to be bad times in the past. is also going to be something that builds toward us into the present and we can hopefully use that to build toward a better future. Mm. And Joel's remarking on the goldfish on saying like, how they don't let the past control them. It's just something that happens. They just keep going around in this uh, in this glass aquarium with nothing but their own reflection, but that doesn't stop them.
3: Yeah, they aren't plagued by the curse of memory having like, uh, you know, they have, no, actually, we I don't know if we talked about this. I don't know if that's actually true about goldfish having short-term memory, but still just the image, the idea of what we're talking about, let's accept that to be true, that goldfish can't remember, you know, more than five seconds. So they like keep circling around in circles. Um, yeah, they're free of that. So they're free of uh, these chains of the past, but um, also there is The flip side of that, which is sort of the blessing of memory and these fond memories, I guess, that Maurice has that in the end of the episode, I guess, turn out to be true, um, whether or not we've talked about if he learns from anything there, but just having a a fond memory in the past. And it doesn't mean that you're living in the past, as you're saying, to uh, look into the mirror of self-reflection, just um, recognizing it, that it's there and we can make our own lives, I guess, as you said up and down. Sometimes there's good times. Sometimes there's bad. Yeah. Very powerful ideas. And I love that they're bringing it full circle with the goldfish swimming in circles.
2: Right. And playing into the idea of comfort, what you were just saying, Mm. Joel finds the chair to be very comforting. (laughs) He's the first individual that says like, hey, I like this. I think it's really comforting
3: right there. I thought that was hilarious. I loved it. It made me it really made me smile. Um, of course, Joel likes the chair, but you know, the kind of comforting ending here is that it wasn't necessarily like the accoutrements that Maggie brings in to make the place the right place. She just needed the right person to sit in the chair. And, you know, because there is such a fond, fond feelings between Joel and Maggie. And as we see, Uh, with the very ending of the episode when they go outside and it's actually starting to snow, there's a very touching moment where um, it's like a two shot and Maggie and Joel are looking dead at each other. Uh, And they kind of stay like that for a good five, 10 seconds. And it's just, we can feel that electricity and warmth between them. Yeah, really good to see that a lot of times they try to push away the relationship between Joel and Maggie because they don't want to like, oversell it or overdo it because that's kind of the engine that the show runs on but it's nice to get that reward of seeing them kind of in love I guess in quotes I don't know
2: yeah well let's save that very last scene for the very last moment that we talk about in the podcast let's just end this plot line and return back to the main one that we've been saving up for which is going to be Joel taking care of Nedra Larkin yes and we talked about it already in the beginning scene which is like the big old like it's like that meme with like that hole up thing. You ever see that? <laughs> He's up. Like, yeah. He hears, she's like, i want to die. It's like hole up. <laughs> yeah. It's Joel. He doesn't yeah. That. <laughs> so the next time we see Joel, it's going to be in the brick. He's going to be with Ed and Holling, and Holling has like kind of a morbid thing going on. He's yeah. saying like, Hey, uh, level with me here. Is Nedra going to make it by the end of winter? Cause I got to dig up graves. And once the, uh, once the ground gets too hard, you can't do that. Yeah. Once winter comes, the
3: ground's going to get too hard. And you actually can't dig graves. So if, uh, if someone dies and we haven't already dug the grave ready for, you know, they have to kind of, I guess it's always estimating, but they kind of need an educated guess to dig the right amount of graves. Otherwise the body's going to have to like, I, I guess like spend the whole winter up in Ivory Springer's barn. Remember Ivory Springer, this uh, yeah. two-time character. Towards the end of uh, season four, he's like in back-to-back episodes. Maybe he's in he re, he appears twice in two nearby episodes. This uh, this farmer that has like a, a feud with Holling, and I think later he hires Holling. Uh, he has a feud with Maurice. I think later he hires Holling to work the fields. But yeah, I like that they we don't see him, but they invoke his name here in Ivory Springer's barn. Ed says they keep the bodies up in the upper loft so the wolves don't get at them. <laughs> um.
2: So god, funny. We're gonna bleep that. Like, there used to be—I forgot what movie it is. There is a movie. It's a comedy movie in which someone's body is like dragged by wolves, and like, it's like dragged into the bush, so you don't actually see what happens. And like the imagery is like hilarious because it's yeah. not the most. It's like so messed up. Yeah, so like, I think. I think it's. I, I always laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. Stop. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's like, it's like super disrespectful to the individual that's in that barn. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're already they're dead. It's like, I think in, I
3: think in Sicily they would have a good laugh too. Cause as it turns out, as macabre as this is, hauling asking people like, You think you're going to die? Like, should I dig a grave for you? No one takes
2: offense to it. I guess Joel is surprised by this. Right. Joel is saying like, no, 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 no. That woman is not dying. Take her name (laughs) off the list. I'm her assigned physician Mm -hmm. and I'm going to make sure she makes it out of there. Very noble. I can see where he's coming out of. Uh, I can see where he's coming from. It's not coming from like a personal level of being like, oh, you don't trust my judgment. It comes from a professional level saying like, I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to save individuals. I'm going to preserve you, and we're going to see how that plays out. Uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't think it comes to anybody's surprise. I mean, it's got so many death flags.
4: That she, <laughs> that she dies.
2: Die. Yeah. But yeah, that's ultimately where this scene ends.
4: Right.
3: The next time we see Joel's sort of plot line, Nedra's this whole this whole plot line going on here is with uh, Ruthanne in her store. Um, I forget. Why Joel is in there, but he notices he's uh,
2: trying to buy like warm leggings. Okay, for, like, yeah. Long underwear. I think it's like 30 bucks or something like that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Is that how much those cost? It seems kind of expensive.
2: I let that fly because I thought like <laughs> maybe they
3: were very special. It yeah, might be like heavy duty, because it right. probably gets a lot colder up there than we've ever experienced, Charles. But regardless, he's in the store and he notices Ruth Ann's got this amethyst ring. And he's like, wow, that's really nice. And she says it's a gift from Nedra Larkin. Um, and he's like, wait, wait, this wasn't like a deathbed offering kind of thing. And she's like, well, actually, yeah, kind of was. And Joel again takes offense. He's like, look, she's not going to die. Like I'm her doctor. I know that she's fine. Like I'm going to make sure she's okay. Um, but Ruthann is like, hold up. Like that's pretty condescending of you to, to say something like that about, you know, misjudging uh, Nedra in this way let's see I've got a soundbite of this whole conversation because it's pretty um, it's pretty in depth
0: hey that's nice
3: mm-hmm.
0: what is that Amethyst? uh huh that's great it's beautiful Nedra Larkin gave it to me Nedra? that's right she said she wanted me to have it she's not still talking about dying is she? Mm-hmm. I'm sure gonna miss her wait a minute was this so, some kind of deathbed bequest? well I guess you could say that are you kidding me? And you, you accepted this? Well, she's an old friend. Why wouldn't I? What are you talking? To- Why wouldn't you? I did feel a little awkward, but Nedra said it was better to give with warm hands than with cold. Let me tell you something. There aren't going to be any cold hands, okay? You, you're pandering to a, a, a very misguided and self-deluded old woman. Misguided? That's right. Self-deluded? Yes. Nedra Larkin. That's right. She is not dying. Forgive me, Joel. But that's the most pompous, condescending thing I ever heard. Who are you to say that? Well, I'm only her doctor. Well, it's her body, and she knows a good deal more about it than you do.
3: Yeah, so in the in the minds of the, in the view of the townsfolk, you know, of course, they don't disrespect Joel's medical expertise, but... Um, I think they value just like the gut feelings of what's going on. And this person, Nedra, is, I guess, old enough and wise enough and just like, you know, herself enough, like she's lived as herself for this long that if she decides that she's going to die next week, let let her do that. That's like her, in a way, it's like that's her decision or that's just like her, it's not I also don't think it's like she's choosing to die. I think she just knows it, apparently. is that, I think that's what the episode's trying to say.
2: Yeah, it, it's a very fine line to draw between there because, you know, they're having to respect the autonomy of her being and saying, like, you know, she can understand where it's ending at. And Joel's saying, like, once again, he's juggling between his profession and his personal life mm. right there we can really see this come to a head at what I think is the climax of the episode. We see Joel making another house visit to Nedra. And when he opens the door, he actually opens it to her son-in-law. The whole family is there to coming down from Boston to go see her. And he talks to the son-in-law and uh, Nedra's daughter. And he's saying like, don't you think this is, you know, you guys are like encouraging her. And they're like, no, we're not encouraging her. She's just, she knows that it's inevitable. And it's like fighting against uh, Niagara Falls. It's just something that's going to happen. Why fight it? That's simply what's happening. And Joel obviously still disagrees. And then we get to the second part of the scene, which is where he goes and talks to Nedra herself. He Mm -hmm. wants to do one last house visit to her. And she's in the bed and Joel comes in and says, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't approach this in... The proper way I should have realized that when you said that you had a problem, then you do have a problem. I should believe that. And if you believe that you are uh, ailing from something that would cause death, then we can come at this together. We can fix this. You just have to tell me what's wrong with you. And Nedra very kindly directs his attention to a photo that's next to her. And she says, this is my mother when she was 25 years old. Uh, It was taken when I was four years old when I meet her in heaven, do you suppose that she's going to look like this? Or do you think she's going to look like the way she was when she passed away 70-something years ago? Mm. Which is a very interesting idea to me. It's like, are you going to be remembered at the part of your life where you quote-unquote live the most? Or are you going to be remembered for your life of where your last moments were? It's essentially what Nedra is saying. Mm.
3: Yeah, and that's really interesting. We're just talking about like you know, life not necessarily being a straight line from birth to death, but go, you know, like there's a lot of, a lot of living that happens like in between and you're kind of circling back around, especially like remembering the past, imagining the future. That's a really great image uh, that I think is a really powerful moment of the scene, this episode. And just, I think it's an arresting idea. Like if you hear that from someone, it's shocking because it's like, you know, Nedra's, uh, gripping with the fact that she's about to die. But also it's, um, just a really interesting thought as we, as we already know, just cause we're talking about it right now. And we're all sort of moved by this. Yeah. I, I also was thinking about this in the scene. It's not so much that Nedra's like, I want to die, but she has like resolved. Uh, she has like resignation of just understanding that this is going to happen and she's going to make peace with it. Um, it is inevitable, is it From her point of view, and I guess maybe in the truth of the show, it is inevitable. But Joel, um, he doesn't understand it. And I think Nedra agrees to let him do more tests um, in a way to just kind of like explain it to him and show it to him. Because Joel knows in his own medical expertise that she's not going to die. But he... Also, as you said, he explains to her, well, I should have listened to you. If you feel like something is wrong, then something is wrong. You got to help me understand what's going on. So maybe she just is trying to uh, find a, some other way to explain it to him because he, he can't figure it out in this, in this scene so far.
2: Right. And I actually, uh, I apologize to the listeners right now. We've actually confused two scenes. Oh, okay. Um, This actually happens future. The reason why is because there there are two scenes of her in the bed. bed. So he comes back (laughs) later and she does the the picture thing. But but yeah, it's... We can mix them together. They're all mixed together, but like the, the sentiment still remains the same. The thing that we're missing is actually the the middle scene, which is where Joel is examining her x-rays. Um, mm-hmm. She actually agrees to do one last uh, checkup, but in, and it's not for her sake. It's for Joel's sake yeah. because it makes him feel better. So they go through one last checkup, and Joel's looking through the pictures and the x-rays, and Joel's talking to Marilyn, and he says, look at this. There's nothing wrong with it. And Marilyn says, Isn't that good? And Joel says, No, it's not good that a patient of mine who is perfectly healthy is in the belief that they're gonna die. You know, I spend 10 years as a doctor just trying to prevent that. So it's again going to the idea that Joel's wrestling against the um something that just cannot be stopped.
3: Yeah. He says, Look, that the whole winding down theory, winding down is what um Nedra says at the beginning of that very first soundbite that we played. It's the first scene of the episode, she ends it by saying like, I just like, I'm just winding down. And Joel says, winding down. And they're like walking out of her cabin as this is happening. But before we hear them have this next conversation, that's the end of the scene. But now he's saying that again, this whole winding down theory, I'm sorry, I don't accept that. He says like, death is the enemy. Just as you said, Charles, like he spent 10 years of his medical profession you know, fighting against death. Like that's literally an everyday battle of him trying to save um, his patient's lives in a way and maybe small ways, maybe large ways. But yeah, he's worried that he's just like a crummy doctor and he feels like he's failing because, um, I don't know, there is a lot, this all kind of, this does come to resolve itself in the end too. It all comes back around. But at this point now, I'm starting to feel like it's not so much that, it's in a way, it's it's gonna tie into the fact that like Joel has a certain relationship to death. We see in this scene that he's constantly fighting it. And it's his idea as a doctor is that you have to like beat the crap out of death and like knock it back, keep it from happening. That's your role as a doctor is to prolong life. But I think by the end of the episode, at least he starts to see what we've already seen from Nedra, which is sort of this resignation and acceptance that death is a part of life. And I don't want to get too far ahead there because that, as I said, this does happen, like I think towards the very end of this plot line. But I think we're starting to see that in Joel right now, well, at least we see, like, his relationship to death here.
2: Right. Uh, curiously, what happens next is actually, like, a bookend. It's, it's it's like, something that's placed in between all of the plot lines. We're going to see Hauling and Ruthan look through an actuary, which is mm-hmm. something that can kind of, like, doesn't accurately predict someone's death, but it kind of gives, like, a guesstimate to be like, hey, if you smoked and you've gone through this amount of stuff and you've had this amount of heart attacks, blah, 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 you can be expected to live this long. And they go through it and they look at uh Vern Addison, who's 58, <laughs> smokes two packs a day, spin through a divorce, and they're like, Whew, you know, that guy's he ain't, he ain't got a lot of time on the clock. <laughs> so it's kind of like again, a very morbid conversation.
3: Yeah, we and we skipped another scene, but we actually kind of already talked about it. But it's similar to this one where they're in the brick and hauling straight up, just like walks straight up to this extra, this guy, Owen. And he's like, you know, I know you like took a little bit of sickness earlier, like this year. And I just wanted to make sure, do you think you might be dying this winter? Cause uh, I'll go ahead and like dig a grave for you. And it's really funny because this, again, this is a morbid um, topic, but Owen, this character doesn't take any offense. Uh, in fact, he like thanks Hauling in the end. He thanks him for thinking of him. It's like, oh, thanks for, uh, thanks for thinking of it. I'll be fine. I'm not, I'm not expecting to die anytime soon. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that ties in with the actuary tables, as we just said, and they're able to, um, hopefully, uh, use these to provide a little better educated guess of, uh, how many graves they may want to dig. Hopefully not too many. I mean, they've got to dig one for Nedra. Yeah. We don't, we don't ever get a, uh, um, a final ruling on that, like how many graves they actually do dig, but that's good. I don't think we need to know.
2: (laughs) Right. Well, true to his word, Joel comes back for one more visit to Nedra. He promises her and says like, the next day we're going to get you moving up and about. This is all within your mind. You can conquer this. And he knocks on the door and Ruthann opens it. And she breaks the news that, you know, that she has passed away. It was, inevitable that it was going to happen. And Joel has a slight breakdown. He says, I've been working on this for three years to prevent this. And Ruthann comforts him and tells him, you know, even though they had their disagreement at the beginning of the episode, she comes back and tells Joel, like, you know, it was bound to happen and she knew it. Like, this isn't something that which you need to stress about. But she also says, you need to sign the death certificate. Come on inside and do what you have to do. So she's kind of reminding Joel the responsibility that he has as the town doctor that he not only welcomes life, but he also says goodbye to life. He needs to go through this cycle that his patients go through. Yeah, it's a nice
3: uh, a way for Joel to come to terms with this idea. I've got a nice, a nice soundbite that we can play that's the scene that you're describing.
0: I never lost a patient. Uh, one that I really knew. When I saw people die in ER, I just i didn't know them. I took care of this woman for three years. For three years. I blew it. Oh, Joel, you did no such thing. Good Lord, you're only a doctor. Tell me, do you reproach yourself when winter comes? When the grass dies and the leaves fall from the trees? Nedbra died because it was her time. And she died well. She died with all her wits about her and with her loved ones by her side. She said all her goodbyes. You and I should only be so fortunate, Joel.
3: She says, do you reproach yourself when winter comes? Like when the leaves die and change in season? And, um, yeah, she also says, like, for goodness sake, you're just a doctor. And to Joel, the definition of doctor for a long time might have been... uh, you know, to fight against death, as we said. But in a way, this this whole idea is like trying to get Joel to come to terms with the fact that death is a part of life. However, Joel says like he never lost a patient. I mean, he says like, well, I, I never lost a patient that I never really knew. Um, okay, I okay, that definitely makes sense. And if you think about it, this um, he says he took care of Nedra for three years, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, is probably like about how long he's been in Sicily now. I guess it's probably mm-hmm. like four years or something. I can't remember. I guess every season is supposed to be a year because there's that one point where like his contract gets extended, whatever. Uh, this this patient could very well be like a patient that he took up um, like right when he arrived to Sicily or not very long after he arrived to Sicily. So his relationship with Nedra is also sort of like the beginning of his life in Sicily. And now- this is like a patient that he's been with since he's been here and she's gone. So it definitely, yeah, you can definitely see that profound effect.
2: Right. It even ends on a very melancholic tone because we talked about how there were dogs that were just running all about and there was lots of salmon that were decorating her yard. Yeah. The scene ends with the day about to shift into night and a camera pans back and it's completely empty. The dogs have now gone, uh, presumably to different owners. They no longer have a caretaker and the salmon have now been sold off or stored somewhere else. It's completely empty.
3: Yeah. Very stark shot that we get. I think it's sort of a low angle too, but it's a very, you know, uh, Joel and Ruthanne are going into the house, but they're very small in the frame because the camera is pulled all the way out to the edge of the yard, I'm assuming. And it's it's kind of, um, in a way it kind of looks like it's a little tattered and like in disrepair. It might've always looked like that, but, um, <laughs> cause the dogs were always running about, but yeah, just definitely feels empty and a bit sad, but this does tie together. We already mentioned when Joel goes to visit Maggie and he sits in the chair, he, he ends up at Maggie's house because he was like wandering aimlessly through the night. And he just like, I think I, I just, I just saw your house and thought I'd come in and just talk for a bit. And, um... Yeah. We talked about that scene and the moment they share uh, in the snow and uh, the whole, at the end here, I guess we can talk about this final scene where it's like craning out, but all the townsfolk of Sicily are stepping out into the street and actually seeing uh, the first bit of snow. And they're all saying to each other, "Bonivere, Bonivere, hey, I think it's starting to snow. It's actually, I think it's Ed and Hauling, right? Holling is saying something to Ed. He's like uh you know, I heard that they got snowmobiles now with attachable baby carriers. I was thinking about getting one for <laughs> Shelly.
2: Um, yeah, I like that. It's uh, invoking the idea again of life.
3: Yes, a new life, uh, you know, the cyclical nature of life and death.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just a, like the changing of the seasons and we see to top it all off, Chris is delivering a monologue and K-Bear talking about the ephemerality of snow and the seasons and how it's destined to melt away.
3: Yeah, it's almost like a rhyming poem, right? I forgot. Like, wait, is this taken from something or?
2: Uh, It's definitely taken from something. I don't (laughs) think
3: it's original material. (laughs) I don't know what it's from. Uh, I'll remember to take a look at that and maybe try to insert it in here.
2: Hey, quick punch in. I just wanted to say that the poem Chris is reading from is called Beautiful Snow, and it's from John Whitaker Watson. Here, it goes a little bit like this. Oh, the snow, the beautiful snow filling the sky and earth below. Over the housetops, over the street, over the heads of people you meet. Dancing, flirting, skimming along. Oh, the snow, the beautiful snow. How the flakes gather and laugh as they go. Whirling about in their maddening fun, it plays in its glee with everyone. Chasing, laughing, hurrying by. It lights on the face and it sparkles the eye. And even the dogs, with a bark and a bound, snap at the crystals that eddy around. The town is alive in its heart and a glow to welcome the coming of beautiful snow.
3: But I do think it's really nice to see that everyone's like very excited when the first bit of snow happens because, you know, like for us, Charles, I can definitely relate to this. Like when I see... When I ever see snow, it's very magical because we don't ever, we never <laughs> see snow down here. But in a place like Sicily, where there's obviously an overabundance of snow, it's just nice to see that people can still get excited by this like magical feeling of snow. Even, even when they get so much of it, it's just like the beginning of this first snow. It, it's, it's very nice. I think Shelley also is like, look, it's all better. She sees, um, well, she sees Joel. Coming by. They're all, all the townsfolk are out in the street now. She says to Joel, Look, she's like talking about her nose. It's all better, Um, as if like the Pinocchio effect has dwindled. (laughs) He says, I think if you say so, sure.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah,
3: it's a nice magical moment where the camera cranes out. We see the whole town, a lot of people gathering for the snow.
2: Right. Yeah. I'm always jealous of that, like you said, because, you know, even if you don't change, like the inevitability of the seasons will change. And like, it wills it itself a you, like the earth itself. We'll go through all these seasons. If you live in an area that lends itself to do that, oftentimes uh, we don't, we barely have any change. Like we never get snow. So like, yeah. we don't really have a lot changing. <laughs> exactly.
3: And before we end here, because this is kind of the last little bit of this episode, the last plot line that we've got, I wanted to talk a little bit just briefly about death in Northern Exposure because I I was reading this article recently. It was written for like the last episode of Northern Exposure just talking about like because they knew when the show was ending. Um, This was like going to be the final broadcast of Northern Exposure uh, in season six, obviously. But the article talks about like, you know, celebrates the show Northern Exposure and all that we've been through. But it does have a passage that really focuses on the fact that Northern Exposure uh, more than other shows, is is very focused on death, the idea of death. And definitely that's the case with this episode. But you can think of a lot of episodes where death is pretty prominently featured. Like, you know, Rick at the end of season two is killed by a falling satellite. There's an episode in season two, What I Did for Love, when Maggie is worried that Joel is going to uh, board a, a plane that's, that's going to crash. He has a premonition that he's going to die. Um, there's this episode. I mean, we could go on and on. There's the episode of the mysterious person who died in town and no one knows where he came from. I think I'm only thinking of season two examples right now, but, but yeah, it's just interesting that this show, maybe that's also part of why it resonates with a lot of people is because it does talk about death so much. It's kind of morbid to think about, but I think it's true.
2: All right, now is the time where we introduce someone new to the podcast that has never seen Northern Exposure before. This week, we're going to have someone that I have like a relationship with as like an editor. Uh, he's looked over for a lot of the stuff that I've written, and he is also a content creator on YouTube. He goes by the name of Kamimamita. Oops, I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's Kamimashita. He writes a variety of video essays analyzing a lot about anime, and it is in my opinion, fascinating. I think he's a brilliant writer. I think that his videos showcase a lot of viewpoints that I never think about, and all in all, just demonstrates a really great grasp of the English language, hence why he's always helped me out. But yeah, let's see
4: what he has to say about this episode. Greetings. I'm not quite so sure how to introduce myself, actually. My name is Wilson. I've worked with Charles on a number of projects involving writing. I guess you could call me a content creator, and I'm also a nurse. Not only have I never seen Northern Exposure, I forgot about Charles's request until he reached back out to me, so you can consider this super blind, or I guess you could say as fresh as the winter's first snow, which is the episode I'll be covering. It's been a while since I've seen a show from this generation. It felt nice revisiting that sort of 90s feel with some of the camera shots and especially that saxophone opening. <laughs> I love the sort of idle conversation that starts us off just Normal neighborly chatter about mushing minutia, while also rapidly endearing us to Nedra as preparation for the rest of the episode. Charles said it was okay if I said I disliked the show, but I had no idea it was medical related. I adore and consume medical shows. I even watched Heart of Dixie, which is this sort of trashy love triangle show about a big time city doctor who goes to the country and falls for two cowboys. But back to the opposite of the self. Uh, this episode has two main plots involving Shelley and Maurice, as well as Fleischman and Nedra. Um, there's also a little subplot about redecorating that slots in well. I feel the Shelley plot I feel might have benefited from some context. Maurice just came off as super uncomfortable and strange, especially with comments like "When you belong to me." Could partly be due to the time period. Could also just be some quirk of his character. Shelley also seemed pretty young to be involved with Maurice and Holly, but you know, who am I to judge? In general, I think Maurice has some pretty unhealthy ideas, or at the very least some of which deviate from my own personal beliefs. For example, his gift of the rattle. It's a nice gift. But maybe this is because I used to be like this, there's something discordant about turning something highly functional, a child's plaything, and converting it into this sacred relic that god forbid be used for its original purpose. It reminds me when I used to penguin walk in my new shoes to avoid creasing them. Then, of course, there's attributing so much of his sense of self as being someone who could quote-unquote pull someone like Shelley, and then just completely disintegrates when that belief is challenged. Don't get me wrong, Shelley was wrong to do what she did, but his reaction shows just how fragile and shallow the human ego can be. While the Maurice Shelley plot had some meat to it, I was really pulled in by Fleischman's conflict. I've seen a couple of shows tackle this sort of doctor-has-to-confront-death plot, like Scrubs. But I think Northern Exposure does a great job here, without using a lot of comedy or drama. In fact, I would describe the show as very matter-of-fact. You know, things just kind of flow. It really captures that struggle medical professionals have, feeling that they have to be adversarial with death or fight against it at all costs. I just listened to this podcast from Freakonomics with uh, palliative physician B.J. Miller. It's episode 488, and so much of what they talk about is relevant here. There's a scene where Fleischmann is looking over the charts and the lab values and he says something to the extent of, there's nothing here that would indicate she isn't in perfectly good health. And I just wanted to yell at the screen. Yeah, except for the patient, you dolt. But it's, it's hard to feel too mad at him because it's clear that he's such an incredibly caring, if not naive physician. Just one that hasn't realized yet that medicine is in service of the patient and their wishes and their goals rather than the other way around. There's a there's a great book about this by um, by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal, where he talks about his aging parents and trying to work with their wishes rather than trying to prolong their life at all costs. You know, and this is really juxtaposed nicely against the people trying to procure graves for the for the new year. You know, Fleischman is almost afraid to say the word death. He personifies it as this sort of grim reaper at one point, point. and this other dude is going around matter-of-factly asking people if they think that person is going to die soon. <laughs> They, they treat it like it is. It's a fact of life that has to be dealt with. Finally, we have the redecorating subplot. Like I said before, it fits really nicely in here. What ends up being that missing feeling is just some semblance of life. Here, new goldfish. They put up a tapestry of the Buddha's journey of which he saw four signs on his first day outside the palace. An old man, a sick man, a corpse, and a monk. And just as the Buddha is supposed to have realized death is a part of life and must be accepted, so too does Fleischmann. Plus with the chair fitting, I sense a bit of a romance here. All in all, great show. I'm glad you exposed me to it. I'll have to start from the beginning and catch back up on the podcast.
2: All right. That was Wilson's commentary for the episode right there. Immediately off the bat, I like how okay, it's not immediately off the bat, but this is the thing that like keeps <laughs> replaying in my in my head. Yeah. He, he said something that like really got into me. He compared this to Heart of Dixie. Yeah. Which is something I have not seen since my like when I was in college and I would uh, go on Hulu after my classes were done because back then streaming was like a lot more simpler. And that was like the show that was always advertised on Hulu. I do not know why I like that yeah. was always the top banner. I, on there. Um,
3: I've never seen that show and I actually hadn't heard about it until recently from this podcast because I know that. Heart of Dixie is often compared to Northern Exposure, and from uh, from Wilson's explanation or description of it, it sounds like big town doctor in a in a you know big city doctor in a small town. So there are at least some similarities, but maybe like in the South, I guess Heart of Dixie. But um, <laughs> I do remember people saying they enjoy it or that they did watch it. You know, at least fans of Northern Exposure maybe.
2: Yeah, it's definitely like super close in the plot. Just like reverse to geographic locations (laughs) right there. Uh, He talks about liking the uh, saxophone opening. Yeah,
3: yeah. the (laughs) 90s feel. Obviously, that is a huge draw for this show, at least for people watching it today, is it has a very nostalgic feel. Even the music is a bit corny. But um, hey, yeah, always got to say David Schwartz, who composed the music for the show. That was a, the Northern Exposure theme was a huge hit of the time for some reason. Like people love this show. They love that theme.
2: Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> if any of y'all know David Schwartz, like any contact information, please, <laughs> we're please tell me we I'm on the podcast. We're trying to
3: get this man. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> huge fans. Huge fans of David Schwartz. Definitely. Wilson also talks about how there was something discordant about the way that Maurice was Converting a child's toy to a sacred relic. Um, It was talking about like the little rattler Mm -hmm. and Wilson had compared it to saying to like, he would also do the same thing where he got a new pair of shoes and he would penguin walk on them to not (laughs) crease them because we assigned value in just like the object itself and not rather its purpose. So we would be like, oh, it's like a new fancy thing. I have to preserve it. That reminds me a lot of like, uh, like coin collectors, mm, you know? Yeah. Like you would get that coin and like the value is not found in their currency. Like it's, you know, it's worth a quarter. It's found in like how old it was, what state it was, you know, all that extracurricular stuff about it. Um, But yeah, did you ever have anything that like you valued beyond what the object was actually fulfilling its purpose to do? Well, yes, for sure. I mean, so
3: there's probably a lot of better examples, but the first thing that came to mind are musical instruments of mine. So just for instance, I think about this a lot <laughs> when I play music, the cymbals on the drum set, um, like those metal discs, uh, f- pretty much for the most part, the way that you make cymbals for the drum set is you can have like the same sort of manufacturing process, but every cymbal is going to be unique. And it's it really is going to sound different, even if you like follow the same the same like recipe for it. So when a symbol, you know, breaks, which can certainly can happen, um, if a symbol develops a crack or begins to break, its sound begins to change. And when it's broken, you can't, it's, you know, to, to replicate that sound, you know, you would have to be a smith. You can't just like go into a store and be like, this mm. one is like similar. You can try, you could get close, but I think about that a lot. And cymbals are pretty expensive, but like to me, they're invaluable, especially if it's one that I associate with my sound. It's like, once this guy breaks, if that day comes and I do have a cymbal that is badly cracked. And that's, so I've been through this already. That's why <laughs> it comes to mind is like, you know, they, these are, but that's, I don't know maybe that's part of the beauty it's an ephemeral thing you know it's
4: is that it's only is that something you have that's to really play it,
3: you know oh, sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but it's a just a, just a, it just clicked in my mind but what wilson was saying is like god forbid we use it for its original purpose like you know by playing the symbol you are slowly but surely Breaking it, you know, one right. one hit at a time. So yeah, you you gotta play it, even if it's gonna break. so I didn't mean to cut you off. This
2: so <laughs> no no ahead. no, that's totally okay. What I was gonna say is like, is there like a market for like, let's say, I, I don't know, like, I I don't even know if he's still alive. <laughs> I'm just gonna use him because he's the most famous drummer, like Neil Pert, like uh, Neil. Sadly, he passed away like two years <laughs> ago. Yeah, um, but uh, is there like so like let's say Neil Pert plays on a drum for a while. He's like well and on the cymbals. Will, will he just be like, oh, I'm not really like feeling this symbol for some reason, but can he put it out into like an auction of some sort to be like, hey, if you want to like kind of replicate my sound, yeah, yeah. you can buy my symbols. Like there's a market for that.
3: Definitely. Yeah, definitely like reselling used instruments from like famous musicians. Huge market for that. Also, Neil Peart has his own line of signature symbols, And again, like no <laughs> two symbols are going to sound the same, but they're like kind of made in the same style. So they have very similar characteristics. And recently... The one of the symbol, actually a couple of the symbol companies, the major ones have started going back to very famous symbols, like the jazz symbol that was recorded on that song, Take Five by Dave Brubeck. They've like, the Zildjian Symbol Company has made a version of that Take Five symbol and is, you know, they're trying to reproduce that in mass. Again, each is going to be a little different. Uh, There's a lot of that too. I think um, Chick Corea had like a um that's now this is a jazz pianist but like his uh one of his drummers had a flat ride cymbal that he always loved and he he took it from the drummer and like kept it <laughs> cuz he would use it for every drummer that would join his band he would be like you have to play this cymbal And some part of your kit. Sorry to get, so I get really into this drum gear stuff, but (laughs) there definitely is a market for reselling used equipment that a famous musician has played on and then also replicating their sounds.
2: That is like super (laughs) uh, fascinating now that you bring it up and because it could be parallel to a lot of things. But like the first thing I was thought of was like, initially I thought it was like, all right, well, like surely it would be better if you just got like your own cymbal and you played on it and you Mm -hmm. tried to like, mimic the sound of neil pert but ultimately you would fail because it's impossible to do a one-to-one recreation Mm -hmm. but then you would like develop your own sound and all that but then i thought like you know i I thought about the other way i was like okay let's say you get like neil pert's line of symbols and you tried to play on it you would still have the same result like ultimately you could not match neil pert's sound but at the end result you would have your own special thing it was just guided a little bit by neil pert's symbol sound
3: And then like the sound of the room, the, uh, the way the, the mics that are used to record the process, you know, just the way it's recorded and EQ'd, there's so many things that go into what makes the sound. But ultimately I think I'm with you, Charles, it's like you, you're going to just have your own signature sound. You can't ever like, you know, be exactly like that one recording, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it's fun to try and to, and to, and to feel like that. I think that's where the market is for, for those products, but,
2: um, but enough about that. What else Sorry, what else does, uh, yeah, we, yeah, we, what else does Wilson we say? We went a little bit, a little bit too far down the symbol right there. <laughs> so, uh, he talks about really enjoying Joel's storyline. He said mm-hmm. it captured the medical feeling of him. He, uh, talked about, well, at least made me feel dumb. He was just talking about <laughs> listening to Freakonomics. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, that was really cool. What did he say about that Freakonomics? Uh, Well, I don't know if I wrote down, what did I write down? Um, I wrote down how Wilson thought the show's relationship to death or perspective on death wasn't too dramatic or too comedic. It was just very matter of fact. And we can definitely see that in this episode. But I liked how he points out how Joel is so, you know, adversarial um, against death, you know, trying to fight against death. And um, there's a perfect juxtaposition between Joel's relationship with death and then Holling, who can just go around willy-nilly and ask his every customer if they expect to die this (laughs) winter, you know? Right. That's a great little foil between the two.
2: Yeah. And he was saying that like, it's really important for like the doctor to realize like the patient's wish Mm -hmm. rather than the other way around right there. And to tie it all off with like a really neat ribbon, he also alludes to the Buddhist journey. Which is in that tapestry that Chris gives to Maggie. Mm, um, yeah. Essentially, it was like a, a cycle that you go through through life and death. So you're just consistently going through it and uh, going around and around, which perfectly fits into the theme of today's episode right here.
3: Yeah, what was it like the journey along the journey? You see an old man, a sick man, a dead man, a monk, or, or something. I think Wilson says. But yeah. yeah, that's a good like the a circular you know, progression of time there of, of life and death. Yeah. And what you had just said about Wilson talking about, um, you know, being a doctor, what did Wilson say? He says, like, I wanted to scream at the screen. Like, you know, it's not about you, Joel. <laughs> it's about your patient's wish. But he, he brought up a book called uh, being mortal, which I have, I didn't get the author's name though. You know, he, he says the author's name.
2: Atul I just, Gawande? There we go.
3: Thanks. Yeah. I didn't write it down. I was trying to jot down my notes quickly. But I thought that was really interesting what he brought out from that book, um, how the author was um, learning to work with his parents, their wishes, uh, their medical wishes, rather than trying to just like prolong their lives at all costs. And Wilson says, you know, Joel may be a little naive in that he hasn't realized that medicine is in service of the patient first. And, you know, he also says like, you know, we can tell that Joel is caring. And um, I think overall- you know, whether or not Joel knew this or didn't, this episode definitely serves to underline that point. Um, maybe Joel had forgotten. Maybe he had never known this. He never realized that he was too naive. Or maybe he had just like forgotten that at the end of the day, yeah, his patient comes first and it's their, it's whatever their desire is, you know, at the end of the day.
2: Right. I think uh, our mutual friend, uh, Addy, he's appeared on the pod. He's a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually recommended at least to me, I don't know if he had recommended oh, okay. it to you. Um, Being Mortal by Atul He had also recommended When Breath Becomes Air by Paul. I'm going to butcher his name, <laughs> <laughs> Paul Kalanithi. I want to say is how you pronounce it. They're like they're always compared with each other. Okay. I've actually read When uh, Breath Becomes Air. I thought it was a lovely book, right hmm. there. But yeah, I, I think that what you said also correlates with Joel and that, like, I don't think that he necessarily. Like, maybe he didn't know the lesson, but I think it was just, like, really in the moment. Like, he yeah. just got captured in that panic of being like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm looking at the charts. You're okay. I'm, I'm not he about to lose my first patient. Die. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I true.
3: Think, I forgot. Yeah, it's like it was his first patient he said, or his longest patient he's had.
2: Right. I think if you like, he was, like, taking a test he would know. you mm. would be like, oh, no, no, no. Like, you should, you know, listen to that. I don't know. Who knows? But like, yeah, to end it all off, he says that he senses a little bit of a romance between Joel and Maggie.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely really appreciate because we've been all around like this winding road with the relationship between Joel and Maggie and especially in the last season when there's this new love interest of Mike Monroe. Now he's gone. I'm really glad now it feels like at this point in the fifth season, that things are starting to heat up again with uh, with Joel and Maggie. It's uh, The romance is is growing, I think, stronger.
2: Right. And finally, Wilson, I know you said you wanted to start at the beginning, but uh, you can start at the beginning of Northern Exposure. That's fine. Don't start at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We didn't really get good to like, I don't know, like middle of season three.
3: No, <laughs> um, I mean, like we definitely, I think by the fourth episode, I say this a lot to you, Charles, we talk about it. By the fourth episode, I felt really comfortable in recording, but I actually still think our second episode and third episode, those are really good. Like we did a um, we did a video essay on the third episode of Northern Exposure, Soapy Sanderson. That video essay is on our YouTube channel, just Northern Overexposure podcast on YouTube. But yeah, we did an, a whole video essay on that episode and I went back and listened to our podcast and I think it's you know, I think we we're pretty good. I mean, I think we just got like a lot more comfortable. Obviously, like the sound quality has improved. I've I've learned a lot. You know, it's still improving. I think. Like I, I don't think I've mastered um, how to make it sound perfect, but I think I'm getting a little better at editing this and making it sound better. But um, but yeah, that first episode is a bit is a bit
2: wild. <laughs> it's, it's a bit, we would I would like, I mean we can't. But like I would totally re-record that. Like I
3: definitely say something um, completely wrong. Like I got it backwards in there. Whatever, it's fine. Um, it's it has a, the most listens of any of our episodes. Yeah, and it's then the like with one, a but... steep
2: decline. <laughs> no, there really isn't. That's yeah, just a yeah, joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, but
3: no, yeah, it's fine. I I always recommend if you're if you like Northern Exposure and you're listening to this podcast, just find like your favorite episodes. Um, though I do know a lot of our fans will. Like do a sort of watch along. Like they'll watch a season and listen to the episodes as they watch, which is probably I would imagine pretty fun too. Though our release schedule, we try to release once a week. Though obviously we were just on hiatus earlier, so every once in a while we'll take like a extended break. Sorry about that, but uh, we try we try our best to keep things um, keep things regular. Well, okay. I think that wraps it up for this episode. Wilson, once again, thank you very much for taking the time to watch this episode and compose your thoughts and send them to us. Really enjoyed your take. We had a lot to talk about with that. Um, But Charles, for next week, we're going to be going to the 11th episode in season five. It's called Baby Blues. Do you have any predictions on that?
2: Baby Blues? Mm -hmm.
3: We know Shelly is still pregnant. So probably referring to, She's got to be. She's got to be in that episode somewhere. Like,
2: wasn't there like a movie also that had like blue in it? It was like really famous around that time. Hmm, I don't know. Like from Spike Lee. I keep wanting to guess. Uh, there was um, Do the Right Thing. Uh, oh, Mobetta Blues. Oh yeah, is that was what I'm that confusing it with?
3: Before or after? That must have been after Do the Right Thing, right? Oh, 1990. Yeah, I don't know why my mind kept going over there. Which would have been? Does that mean it's before? Yeah, that's before. Um, that would have been before.
2: Yeah, that was right before because "Do the Right Thing" is on 1989. "Mo Better Blues" 1990. Oh, oh "Mo Better Blues" came after. Moves,
3: yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I actually really like that movie, by the way. But, but um, which one? "Mo Better Blues." I mean, oh, okay. Obviously, um, "Do the Right Thing" is incredible, but uh, but yeah, they're both really good. Anyway, sorry, it's not about um blues and jazz music, <laughs> um so. <laughs>
2: I'm going to... Well, then, I mean, at that point, like I'm guessing it has something to do with <laughs> Shelly's pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, I think you're pretty spot on. Um, but
3: what could it mean? Is is the baby going to get delivered or maybe something else? I
2: don't think she's that close yeah, to delivery, is she? Maybe
3: she's not. You know what? I'm probably sure that they mentioned like how close she's getting, but I don't think it... Yeah, I don't think it's like... I don't even know what the timeline's like. Like is every episode one week apart? I don't know. But... Anyway, I guess you know, let's stop let's stop um, guessing at it. We'll We'll know soon enough next week. We're gonna be talking about baby blues. Charles, I'll see you next week.
2: All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Wilson for being our guest analyst. If you like what Wilson had to say, you can find him on his YouTube channel, Kami Mashita. And if you like to write in, you can reach us at Northern overexposure Podcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.